Hi everyone, this is Sagar Agarwal, co-founder and managing partner of Beam Fintech Fund. As a regular listener of the Founder Thesis podcast, you would have heard the stories of hundreds of founders talking about how they convinced investors to back their vision. In this episode, we turn the tables and feature an investor talking about how he built his fund and his investment thesis. In this episode of the Founder Thesis podcast, your host Akshay Dutt talks to Sagar Agarwal, who founded one of India's first fintech-focused venture capital firm, Beam's Fintech Fund. Sagar has spent more than a decade and a half as a venture investor. And in this candid conversation, he talks about why he decided to focus on investing in fintech startups and his process for shortlisting the companies he wants to bet on. This is a must-listen conversation for fintech founders who want to understand the investor psyche and evaluate how investable their business is. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app to expand your horizons and learn from veteran business leaders. It's been 17 years I've been in this in the business of private equity and venture capital investing. We used to have the dinner table conversations in the family about financial markets, investing and all of that. Yes. And that led to obviously an interest into the space, right? And as I was finished my graduation, and everybody applies for IM and the IITs, right? IM and the Howards and the Wharton. I also did my drill, right? I joined SPGN for my master's and then fortunate enough to start my career with private equity. So I got my campus placement straight up at uh, uh, a firm called Evolvement, which was based out of Dubai. And we started our career. I started my private equity venture investing from that year itself in 2006-7. And now it's been 16, 17 years now in that journey. So for people who haven't heard of Evolvance. It's not an Indian firm. It's a Middle East based private equity fund. And they were entering into India in 2005, 6, 7, because India was coined as the British nation, right, in 2005, 6, 7. And India was one of those emerging market golden bird, right, which everybody wanted to invest money. So we were also one of the Middle Eastern guys who wanted to enter India. And that's the time the Middle East firm started looking at India more seriously. And we set up a private equity fund in India. And that's where the evolvements of journey started. They were started by a gentleman called Khalid Mahari, who was one of the members of the royal family of Abu Dhabi. So I believe the India side of the business was like being led by you. To be very true, we were three partners actually and the fund and the platform, me and two of the gentlemen and three of us used to run the India part of the operations pretty much and we set up a team of six people on the ground so we were 10 of or nine of us who were building the platform from 2007, 8 onwards, right? And in that journey, we built the private equity fund $250 million, we deployed in India, we invested across multiple sectors, from consumer, healthcare, financial services, infrastructure, real estate, manufacturing, right? Anything under the roof that in turn eight and nine, seven and eight were bullish. We invested money in that and that did very well for us. And then 2014 is when we launched the fund too. So six, seven year journey later, we launched fund two, much more focused towards sectors that we understand, which is consumer, healthcare, and financial services. We moved out sectors which were tough to underwrite from an Indian standpoint, right, which is infrastructure, real estate, manufacturing. The longest issue investments, right, requires a longer journey to make money on it. So we decided to move out all of these sectors and only focus on three sectors. We did a smaller fund, 70, 75 odd million dollar fund. So between fund one and fund two, we built a $325 million uh, 
platform portfolio for investing at $60 million of side pockets, almost $385 million, $390 million of capital that was raised and deployed in India during my journey, right, of 13 years of development. We did a lot of tech private equity. Private equity guys generally invest in traditional businesses and venture capital guys invest in tech, right? So we were the ones to cross over between private equity, traditional investing, tech investing. So that was a 12, 13-year journey. The, the, the experience went through global financial crisis, Policy paralysis of Congress in 2010-11, deeper tantrum in the US in 13-14, oil prices at $145, right? Demonetization in India, Modi coming to power, UPI getting launched, right? Anar becoming prevalent, ILFS crashed, DHFL crashed, right? And then COVID came in, right? So in my journey of 16-17 years, there's been a bunch of black swan events. And they're a lot more now than what they were earlier. People used to say business cycles are seven years. I say business cycles are now three years. Okay. So I want to zoom in and get you to clarify some of the things you said. What do you mean by side pockets? Side pockets is basically our investors co-investing with us in the companies that we are investing in. Okay. Yeah, it's co-investors from the investors. Got it. Okay. Why did fintech outperform the other sectors? There's probably some sort of a macro answer to this. I want to understand that. Like, why is fintech doing better for is it that you chose good bets or is it that fundamentally fintech is a better sector to invest in combination of both we end up choosing right bets right point number one and second if you look which at which did you invest in at uh, evolvent so we invested in sk fincor which is a used commercial vehicle lender we invested in so a small finance bank we invested in centrum forex we invested in the Xilog systems we invested in centurion bank of punjab so a bunch of such investments we did during while I was in the province, right? Um, uh, Sarva we invested in for that matter, right? The reason is that if you look at the economic structure globally, right? Um, one third of our GDP globally directly indirectly comes from financial, right? <clears throat> if you look at the weight in the public markets also, nearly 25% of the public market weight globally is financial services, right? Yep. It's the backbone of every economy, whether you talk about agriculture, healthcare, education, commerce, logistics, automotive, property, every sector is a backbone of financial services, which will be payment, lending, and insurance. So the secularity of the sector is much more bigger than the secularity of any other sector. It's the only yeah. sector which cuts, cuts across all the sectors. And it is not okay. a winner-take-all, and the sector is not a winner-take-all market. You do not have just one HDFC bank, and then you don't have any other financial institution, right? So that's the difference. Like if you have one player which, which corners the market, it's not a winner-take-all market. Okay, okay, interesting. At Evolvents, uh, what was the way in which you would choose companies? What was the investment thesis? At Evolvents, right? I always had the philosophy that you map the sector out from day one, right? Okay, these are the 10 different segments within the within any sector, right? Financial services, consumer healthcare. And look at both the sides, right? You look at the uh, the 10 different segments and look at who are the players in those 10 different segments. Look at the value chain of those 10 different segments. Who's making the most profit pool in that value chain, right? And then you go and invest in the leaders in that profit pool value chain, right? So you bring the sector to the T and then look at the entire value chain and look at the top players in that value chain and people who are making the most money. And then create a shortlist of companies, right? And then based on that, talk to the founders, build a relationship, build a network, and then go individually and invest in them. That's how we have gently invested. Not to mention you get companies from bankers, lawyers, advisors, consultants, you get companies from peer fund managers, right? So there was all of those combination to identify the deals and validate your thesis consistently. You have to take a macro call and you have to take a bottom up call at the same time. 
can you give an example of an investment and what was the macro call you took there and uh, what was the bottoms up approach which made you bullish and and how that got validated over time so give an example of my favorite company sk fincorp right we were very clear that lending to smb is a large problem in india that needs to be solved right smbs can be lent money through toward three different routes right one you can do cold gold loans to that which is a large industry in second you can do loan against property or premise right you take their property you take the premise and you provide a loan against to them third thing is that you can give them working capital finance to supply chain right and fourth thing you can do is give them loan against their pickup trucks and vehicles right which they are using for their own business productivity right these are four different geographies in the smb financing or you give open ended credit to somebody's bank account saying that hey use for your business right which is the most riskiest one so i have never been a big fan of unsecured lending i've always been fan of secured lending in secured lending there were four options right gold loan commercial vehicle financing or pickup truck financing property financing and lastly you talk about supply chain financing right so i chose commercial vehicle financing or pickup truck financing as the most important sector because it's an asset backed sector you can repossess the vehicle if the guy defaults right you pay 35 40% of your money upfront buy the vehicle right and then get the 60% mortgage done so you are in the game already plus you are earning money from the vehicle right it's not a dead asset it's a productive asset for you so if the productivity of the asset doesn't go then you don't make money right and lastly e-commerce was catching up in india right 15 16 17 e-commerce was catching up big time we were very clear that there going to be large amount of warehouses in india multi modal warehouses there going to be a large part of logistics which will be required transportation going to be large part of it last mile delivery going to become very big in india right for all of that you need pickup trucks right you need guys who are small fleet operators small fleet owners who will provide their pickup trucks to these e-commerce players in a contracted model right so the demand is going to substantially grow up uh, pickup trucks are, you will be surprised you know pickup trucks are used in construction activities a lot more in india mm. the gap trucks are used okay. in delivery of people right uh, and delivery of goods yeah, yeah they are very time. very versatile in india they, the usage is a lot more versatile than in the west interesting you said that uh, did a crossover of a pe investing in a tech firm which was traditionally a vc used to invest in tech firms what is the technical difference between a vc and a pe so i divide the space into two categories early stage and growth stage right and lead stage right so early stage is what venture capital is generally top venture capital guys generally dominate right growth stage is what vc and pe both do it and private equity is what uh, lead stage is what private equity does only right that's the three demarcation of the sector venture capital tries to identify new age sectors sunrise sectors tech businesses right the growth stage which is the middle market web pe and vc both play right vc will provide more capital to their own companies and growth stages while pe will provide capital to tech companies also and traditional businesses and listed guys only provide largely used to provide capital to traditional businesses and now they have come into tech crowds right so that was a crossover we did from becoming a traditional pe investor to becoming a traditional pe tech investor right like example i'll give you the difference if you are investing in a ptm it's a pc bet technique Right. If you're investing in Manuel, it's a PE bet. Right. Two different okay. business models. Right. So that's all. You're investing in a bank is a PE model. If you're investing in a fintech, it's a VC model. So it's a crossover between Sorry. PE and VC. Is there a difference in check sizes? What kind of checks a, a PE writes and what kind of checks a VC writes? It all comes down to the stage. To be very true, right? If you do early stage investing, your check size would be one to three million dollars. If you do growth stage, which is a middle stage, five to fifteen million dollars. And if you do late stage, thirty-five to fifty million dollars, right? It's more akin to the stage. 
then akin to the uh, size of the company all the and obviously multiple factors size of the company the journey of the company the valuations of growth right all of that matters sometimes your early stage company could potentially end up raising 100 million dollar check so there are multiple right. factors yeah. akshay which determine the check size or ticket size but a sweet spot is 1 to 3 for early and 5 to 15 for middle and 35 to 50 for large okay got it interesting so tell me about the next step in your journey when you decided to start your own fund which is beams what was the trigger for you to become an entrepreneur and take that up and what was the journey of that 0 to 1 journey of setting up beams mm-hmm. Wow, it's been a it's been an interesting roller coaster journey to set up beams, right? So, 19 when I when I spent 13 years at Evolvins, right, or 12, 13 years at Evolvins, I was very clear that the space that I like the most is financial services and fintech. The space which is done very well in India is that sector. Demonetization had happened, UPI had happened, Aadhaar had happened, internet was made pre- prevalent in 2016, right, by Motorway. So, at 16 to 19, I saw a massive adoption of financial services online, right. And I was very clear that fintech is going to be a large sector. And if you look at the manager landscape in India, there's not a single fund manager who's doing fintech and financial services at growth stages, right? There are a lot of managers who are doing early stage and then doing fintech. There are a lot of managers who are doing late stage in financial services, but there was nobody who was doing a crossover between private equity and venture capital and a combination of fintech and financial services. So to solve that problem, right, and to really think about that as an option, right, which is when I decided to move in 2019. create this platform and the 19 20 21 22 23 it's been five of the first people i have partnered with or joined hands with right was a group called venture catalyst where i decided to partner with them as my shareholders my partners my co-gps in the fund right and i brought them on board primarily because they are knowledge stage platform right in india and uh, i was building a growth stage platform right so you don't need to go reinvent the wheel you already have the early stage ecosystem in place Right, so you can look at the entire spectrum and say, "Hey, who's doing what?" Right, and which of the companies will become larger eventually. So that was the uh, two thesis for me. So first, partner with venture capitalists as a group, and then once you partnered with venture capitalists as a group, right, they became as a shareholder. I brought another gentleman called Lamit. Right, he is the veteran in financial services in fintech space. He's the first. I think one of the earliest payments founders in India built a company called Edge Cash, Edge Card, sold it to Ebix in the US, right? So 2004, 2016, 17, 13, 14 years of building financial services in fintech. When fintech was new in India, right? He was the founding member of Fintech Convergence Council, Payment Council of India. So he brings the depth of experience. So three of us came together to build this platform. And then the idea was to build and build a team of people, come up with a strategy, come up with a, a strategy to deploy capital, come up with a a strategy to allocate money build a portfolio raise capital so 19 20 21 three years was all of that laying infrastructure building blocks laying the rails of what beams will look like not identifying the name registering the trademark setting the brand name right all of that right uh, was a journey from 19 20 to 21 okay for a regular startup there are like some key hurdles you cross as you are going through that 0 to 1 journey like finding product market fit finding investor building a product building a team and so on what is it like for setting up a, a venture what are those hurdles that you need to cross what are those early challenges that you face when you're setting up a venture fund i would say we are not any we are not different than any other entrepreneur in the market right in the same thing when you're coming to the market when there are already 900 funds out there in the market right you have to create your positioning in the market that why do we need a fintech fund right why It's, when you're when you're a fund manager, right? Actually, you're doing two things. You're convincing the investor 
to put money with you and you're convincing the founder to take your money. It's not like yeah. you, you sit on the capital and money goes to money comes to you and money goes to companies. No, you have to convince both the sides of the table, right? You have to convince people to come and join you and believe in your vision, believe in your strategy, believe in your thesis. Building a great platform, you're solving a large problem, right? So that all of those uh, conversations and challenges that any entrepreneur goes, right? We had the same thing. We had rejections from investors saying that, hey, why do we need a fintech fund? I have enough funds in my portfolio. We had the same thing from a new uh, from an entrepreneur saying that, what is Beams? You know, it's a new name. I don't know whether do you have a track record of investing in the past? Should we take your capital or not? How are you going to create value? How are you going to create? What checks can you write? Right. Same thing when you're hiring a team member. They are like, oh, I don't know how much capital you have. Will you be able to survive? Will you be able to grow? Right. So all of that, Akshay, entrepreneur goes through. We went through everything. Right. We built a very institutional platform to solve that problem, Akshay. Starting with the investors first. The investors wanted to see the kind of people who are there on the platform. So we built a team of very solid people. We are now almost 11 people on the ground. We have four partners, seven-member team, 11 people on the ground. People coming with very, very rich experience of financial services in fintech, right? They have done operating experience. They've got investing experience. They've got exit experience. They've got private equity. They've got venture capital. You name it and they've got the experience of the team today, right? So one of the best teams, I would say, in the market who knows financial services in fintech. Second, we started inviting CXOs um, and the CEOs of uh, various companies to become our mentors and advisors in the fund. And these are people from banks, NBFIs, insurance companies, fintech companies, DFIs, right? And they, are, they sit on the advisory board of the fund. Right, and they sit on the mentor board of the fund. Uh, we've got now 12 very senior folks, right, from Vijay Shikrisham of PTM to Vishwas Patel uh, of, of uh, CC Avenues, Vishal Mehta of Infibeam, Rajesh Sharmaji of KP Global, Ajay Rajan from Yes Bank. So that's the kind of folks we started bringing together, create a more institutional uh, layer so that founders can see people that they can look up to also beyond us and ask the right question. And these guys have built larger organizations. They're not retired people. They've built larger organizations and they're active in their role, right? So that's the second layer I've built to convince investors that uh, this is the kind of people who are going to be advising the fund beyond us. And the third layer I've built, uh, Akshay, is the institutional layer. I started bringing banks, NBFIs, insurance companies, and fintech companies to invest in the fund. So look at the reverse map. I'm first asking them to invest in me, and then I will go and invest in the others, right? And that was a thesis yeah, I had to... It's like a... It's, it's like a um, it's like a story where people would, wouldn't want to believe saying that if you are investing in the fund and you're going to invest in the other company, how does it benefit us, right? So explaining to the bank the thesis behind why you should be investing in a fund like ours and how you can partner with my portfolio company and cross-pollinate with my portfolio company is the thesis that I built. I learned it from a uh, fund in the U.S. called... So the U.S., as you know, mm-hmm. is one of the oldest markets in the fintech space. Europe is the like second oldest market. China is third oldest market. And there are more than 100 fintech funds in the U.S. and 80 fintech funds in U.K. and China. We have none in India, right? So making that thesis and people believe that once you come on the platform, we'll be able to create value. And when you go and present to investor, hey, this is not just Sagar running the fund. We've got four partners, seven-member team. We've got a CXO layer. We've got an institutional layer. This is the kind of infrastructure we've built, right? 30 or different sets of people who are helping pick and choose the right investments, right? And then going and telling the founder the same thing. Hey, this is not just Sagar investing capital. It's Beams, right? I mean, these are combination, confluence of a bunch of factors, right? So that's the journey and same thing we had to do with the talent hiring as well. But today, yeah, I think we're, we're very happy with the team that we have and we're very happy with the investors we have. We are very blessed and we're very happy with the portfolio companies we have. 
how much time did it take you to like and like possibly the closing of fund one would be when you would have like is proof of like in a startup you say proof of product market fit so something similar here would have been the proof of everything you put in in that situation we have to find an alternate buyer for their shares right and find a new investor it is not happened to beams yet uh, and touch wood you know uh, it's not happened to us uh, people have happily deployed capital and gone double down on beams so so far we are okay and we're confident that more and more investors are joining the bandwagon with us okay amazing amazing and these investors are like indian institutions or like all over the world or like so we've got a, uh, we've got a very good mix uh, we've got 80% of the capital from india and 20% of the capital from outside india it's a combination of institutions family offices corporates hnis ultra hnis 60% of the capital is institutional 60 65 35% is family offices and cop- uh, and corporates and 15% 10 15% is more individuals right hnis ultra hnis okay okay got it so uh, you were talking of a very impressive board of advisors which you've built up what's in it for them do they also invest money or like like why do, why does one sign up to be a, a, an advisor at a fund one i think it's more than the incentive for them right so they are these guys are generally very well to do guys right and they are at senior positions they have positions in their own journey so they don't sign up to uh, just be uh, uh, they don't just, they don't sign up to just be an advisor and mentor i think one they believe that they can give it back to the community right they can guide the younger entrepreneurs or the new age entrepreneurs to build businesses better second day we also they are inve- they are clearly first the investors in the fund right so when because they invest in the fund it comes uh, alignment of interest autom- automatically happens for them to support our companies in the journey as well right so both those things happen at the same time so one is the not just to invest capital but to also provide something back to the community society as the younger founders are the two primary reasons no matter what i offer them right it will not be sufficient for them right okay got it amazing so let's talk about some of the investments you've done under beams and again if you could talk me through the way you explained about why sk and how that turned out to be a brilliant bet uh, you know can you talk me through some of the investments you've done at beams what was the thesis behind those investments and yeah, absolutely so we've done now we've done four investments uh, akshay and beams right let me just put a step back and tell you why and how we invest in beams right that's more important than the company specifically so beams uh, strategy has always been akshay that we will do concentrated bets in companies 
that we have a conviction on. So we only invested in 12 companies in this part. We have not invested in more than 12 companies in the fund, right? What we've done is that we've identified 30 odd themes within the fintech space that we like the most, right? And we've uh, looked at 30 or 30 odd themes from the perspective of what their journey looks like from an extension perspective. Well, sector is going to pan out, right? In 10 years, is it how big the sector is going to become, how large the sector is going to become. So keeping that in mind, we've shortlisted 30 odd sectors and we've gone and picked and chosen top three companies who are growth stage companies in that category sectors, right? So you can what are those, uh, some of those 30 sectors, if you can uh, name yeah, so to give you To give you a perspective, so instance, payment, lending, insurance, and wealth, right? As the four sectors, right? Then you have the agriculture, healthcare, uh, B2B commerce, education, You've got automotive property, right? Logistics, other other six sectors, right? Then you have the fintech infrastructure, which has core banking solutions, lending stack, collection stack, uh, co-lending stack, right? So all the stacks for the banks for that. So like this, you identify 30 or large opportunities which you can create from them. And you shortlisted 150 companies which meet the growth stage criteria for us. So what is growth stage for us? Companies which are generating 80 to 100 crores of revenue. Minimum in India. That's where we start to get an inflection point in the business. We believe the company will start hitting 8200 crores of revenue, starting an inflection point from our product market fit, from a management team perspective, from a founding team perspective, from a uh, supply chain ecosystem is figured out, the tech stack was figured out. Uh, they have raised three to four rounds of capital. They've been in the journey for five, six years. Uh, they have built a market positioning, right, Akshay? Either you are a number one, number two, number three player, right? So when those factors come together, I call the 10x journey, the 100 crore to 1,000 crore is a 10x journey that any investor wants to go through. That's the journey that Beams wants to come into. That's the journey we invest into. And 10, uh, 100 crore to 1,000 crore journey, uh, growth stage companies, 30-odd themes, 150 companies. That's the way we shortlisted the entire landscape and market mapping. And within that, right, then we started double-clicking on all the companies, or all the 150 companies. And the space that I liked the most, right, amongst all of this was consumer banking. And Citibank had just exited the market uh, uh, by selling their consumer banking business to Axis for $1.6 billion. And having been invested in banks in the past, just Suryuda and, and uh, Centurion Bank of Punjab, I was very clear that the, there's a need to create a new age consumer bank in the market. You cannot just have a traditional consumer bank in the market. Beyond the top five or six banks, people don't associate with seven and the eight banks so easily, right? It's not their first preference. As a 25, 30 year old guy who's working in the tech industry and startup industry doesn't want to go to HDSC. So straightforward, right? He may, he may go to HDFC or a state bank of India because it's in the neighborhood. Right? But for him, he's looking for an uber cool experience, a macro experience, Instagram experience on a bank, right? With shots of a bank. And this is where we looked at all the players in the market and we found Neo as a team which was building very consumer-oriented, consumer-focused product in, in the premium banking segment, in the mass banking segment, in the blue-collar workforce segment. And they have been doing this for seven years before we invested. Right? And they've gone through the journey of COVID, they've gone through the journey of trying multiple products and raising some capital and iteration, multiple iterations, right? And they finally found product market fit in all three categories. <clears throat> from the mass banking perspective, from the premium banking perspective, and the uh, blue-collar workforce perspective, they found product market fit in all the three categories. And that's why the numbers were stacking up, the team was stacking up, the thoughtfulness of the founders was phenomenal. Both the founders came from consumer banking and consumer experience, right? And my view is very clear. Ten years down the line, India will have their digital banks, right? India will have a couple of banks who will get the digital banking license. 
I don't really there's no framework for it. But is it going to stop? Of course not. Will there be an opportunity in the future? Certainly, yes. Can Neo be one of those guys who can actually get a digital banking license and become a digital bank of India? I think there's definitely a potential for that. Okay, amazing. And how much did you invest in Neo? So we invested seven million dollars in Neo. Okay, okay. Sounds like a small amount considering your hundred twenty million dollar fund. Uh, like you, you've kept like you will continue to invest as there is more capital. Like that's the reason. No, so uh, actually, uh, in this fund, we'll do ten million dollar per company and twelve companies one twenty okay. million dollars. So ten million dollars okay. is what we will invest in any company, along with my co-investors, which is what I was talking to you about side pockets, right? Along with the co-investors, we put another three to five million dollar in each company. So if you think about mm-hmm. it, the total allocation to Neo is up to fifteen million dollars for my ten from the fund and five from my co-investors, right? That allows you to get a reasonably decent position in the fund, right? So in the, in the company, for that matter. So that's the ticket side that we underwrite and invest in. Is it important to have this discipline that I will not invest more than this much amount in a company? It could be that you lose an opportunity. It's a great company, although there is a risk also that you may end up taking on more risk by investing too much in one company, which doesn't pan out. But but how, how important is it to have this kind of discipline that? I will not invest more than 10 million in my fund on one company. I think extremely important when you're creating a portfolio, you have to think about the portfolio. You cannot think about companies, right? Companies are part of the portfolio. When you're investing in 12 companies, you have to think about the right allocation of 8 to 9%, 10% in one company, right? You need to give the right diversification in the fund. You need to give the right allocation to each of the companies in the fund, right? If you're going to go and put 15% of the fund in one company and then remaining in the other company, that company doesn't perform for whatever reason, then your fund is going to substantially underperform, right? So portfolio creation is very important, right? And portfolio strategy is very important. So we we look at it from that perspective, are we creating the right portfolio? Are we creating the right uh, allocation to each and every company? You don't want to over-allocate, you don't want to under-allocate at the same time, right? So that's the only difference, and that's how we decided to allocate uh, $10 million per company, 12 investment, $120 million, that's 89 But at any point of time, no company will redefine the fund, but there's always an opportunity for a company to outperform. Okay, interesting. What is the regulatory risk when investing in consumer banking? And I believe Neo had some hiccup recently with their travel card because of the bank which was issuing that travel card. And so like, like how big is the regulatory risk here in this space, specifically consumer banking? Well, consumer, like today, consumer banking because you're dealing with end customers, right? And essentially, our central bank is more concerned about protecting the end consumer, right? For them, in the central bank, uh, the money of the money of the consumer, the deposit for consumer is very important. And for them, protect to protect them, they will do everything, right? So for them, first they want everybody to be licensed, right? Everybody to uh, un- undertake a license and operate, audit every quarter, right? Audit every quarter, and not just audit every quarter, but follow the due regulation and processes, everything, right? The first thing to become a consumer bank is that you need a consumer banking license, a commercial banking license from RBI, then only you can build it, right? So for that matter, because digital bank licenses are not available, RBI, uh, Neo decided to partner with six banks, right? And the bank to use, uh, to build an infrastructure along with them as a digital banking platform, right? So it's an extremely regulated sector, requires licenses of multiple forms and versions, right? Banks don't, don't have just a commercial banking license, they have multiple such licenses, right? Do you see regulatory risk as a material risk or as a minor risk? Like when you evaluate in this space, like... Regulatory risk is always large, Akshay, uh, but there are ways to mitigate the regulatory risk, right? Can NEO, if you don't get a banking license, can you get other licenses, right? Can you get an NBSC license? Can you get a PPI license? Can you get an 82 license? Can you get 
get a payment aggregator license, right? You can get other licenses, still do majority of the work that a bank does, except that you cannot take deposits, which is what we need partnership with other banks, right? If you don't, if you're not necessarily doing just deposits, right, you can do everything that a bank can do. Yes, deposit is the most important pool of the capital that a bank, and based on that deposit, you lend money to other people, right? That's the uh, difference. But uh, regulatory risk, uh, we were very clear that because they are partners with banks, right, they're not building these products independently, there was some sort of regulatory support that we had in the journey. Okay. So banks typically earn through two ways. One is like transaction fees, like to facilitate transactions, there will be certain charges. And second is the interest rate spread, like you get funds at a certain rate, you lend them out at a higher rate. How does NEO earn? NEO, uh, a lot of people come and ask me this question, that how does NEO earn money, right? So I have to be careful with what I say over here on the podcast, right? The first thing that you do, right, when you issue a debit card or a credit card or a forex card to any consumer, right, the consumer is going to go swipe that card. He's going to use that card to withdraw money or he's going to go and use that swipe that card, right? If you swipe that card, there's a transaction fee that I generate on every transaction, right? If you like the product, if you're a user of the product, right, uh, you will start swiping the card everywhere and that's when I will start making money on every transaction, every business, right? So transaction revenue is obviously the biggest uh, uh, revenue for the uh, NEO, right? And then because you're able to garner deposits from the customers, the banks give you revenue share on multiple other products and financial services, you get revenue share and you get transaction fees, both of them, right? As a bank, if you think about it, 40% of banking revenues come from fee income and 60% come from lending income. So for NEO also today, for, because NEO does not have a deposit business and right, the lending business right now, entire 100% is coming from the fee income. Right. Can that eventually become a 60 40 ratio is a question that we ask. Okay. 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 Interesting. Uh, what are some of the other uh, investments that you can talk about? Did uh, invest in ProCap, which is a leading supply chain finance company based out of Delhi, run by Himanshu and Pallavi, husband, wife, right? And come with a lot of experience under their belt, both of them uh, in the SME financing space. As I shared with you, SQ was invested from the thesis that we will provide e commerce with other things and supply chain is from the perspective that. As the commerce business becomes more and more digitized, right? There'll be a lot of capital and a lot of digitization happening in the commerce business in the next 10 years. And you need people who can do supply chain financing in the journey. So it's a secular story on the SME financing space again, just from a different lens. Same thing if you come to the third investment, we have invested in a company, we are investing in a company called Credgenics, which is in the collection infrastructure space, right? They enable banks to collect loans that they've given out to customers. Right, the entire communication toolbox has been provided by Tregenics to banking financial institutions, whether it's an NBSC, whether it's a bank, whether it's a fintech, all of them together, right, provide a collection infrastructure tool and box to a bank and financial institution. And the fourth company we are investing right now, as we're closing as we speak, is Insurance Take Hope, which is the largest insurance distribution aggregation platform in India. Uh, and the, those are the four different segments: insurance, supply chain finance, collections, and the digital banking, consumer banking. And the thesis remains the same. There's a large problem to be solved. There's a market leader. There's a great team. There's a great founding team. Numbers stack up. The journey stacks up. Ten-year story is very visible. Exits are very clear from here. Right? And that's how we decided to invest in these four opportunities. And the remaining eight teams in the fund will also be very similar. Okay. It's interesting that I've somehow managed to interview all these founders like PropCap, CredGenX, Insurance Deco, and uh, Neo. All have been on the show previously. So maybe listeners might find those episodes interesting. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Uh, got it. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. So I want to uh, understand from you more about like what 
advice would you give to founders who are building? What is it? So there's something like a founder market fit concept and you would be evaluating founders in a certain way to decide what makes them worthy of your investment. What is the lens at which you evaluate founders and what makes a founder really appealing? I think uh, experience, right? Nothing beats the experience of check. If you have the relevant experience, you've built it over the past, right? 15 years, 20 years, you've gone through the journey, you've gone through the grind of dealing with RBI, you've gone through the grind of dealing with cycles in the market, business cycles in the market, and you've built an organization, right? That gives me the confidence that you have the chops to build a larger organization. You have a clarity of thought, you have a vision which is very clear, you can lay down the vision of the paper, and you have the execution levers to prove that vision, how you will achieve that vision, right? So clarity of thought, experience, gone through the journey, relevance, build a very strong organization, ability to attract talent, ability to build culture within the organization, share equity, right? Give them ownership, control, decentralization, right? A lot of things come together, actually, when you pick and choose, hey, what are you building and why should we invest with the founder, right? So I just don't look at it in an isolation or a silo. I say, what have you done? What are you doing? How have you built? What's your journey been? And you put together two and two. Does the founder have the capability to build a large organization? Think about that the best talent that's there in the market. Share your equity with the team. Make them part of your journey. Make them give them a sense of belonging. Give them a sense of a cult following to your organization, right? That's when you will see a large outcome. Get the right chops in place, get the right vision in place, find the levers, build the levers, right? That's when we automatically will become the most sought after founders in the market. And some of the big guys are already uh, doing can it. You, right, right. Uh, what do you mean by the levers here? Like find the levers, build the levers. These. Uh, can you give me some examples? Like what, uh, what could the levers example, be like? For Neo, right? Just to take an example of Neo. Neo has to build a premier banking business, mass banking business in the blue collar. You need partnership with banks to build that. You need to innovate on products, right? So have you partnered with enough banks? Are you able to convince enough banks to come and partner with you? Are the integrations deep enough, right? Have you done those partnerships? Have you launched products? Have you been able to convince the customers to use your products, right? So that's the levers to build the business, right? Are you? Do you have a marketing team in place? Do you have a accounting finance team in place? Do you have the? Uh, do you have the tech team in place, right? How do you construct your team in terms of how much should be tech, how much should be customer service, how much should be marketing, how much should be branding? Where do you spend your money? So these are levers to build a business. What are some of the mistakes that? founders end up making it at the growth stage when they're raising like between that 5 to 15 million kind of raise. Not every company which raises that money ends up being a success. So what are some of the things which go wrong? Is it like market forces purely or is it at times wrong decisions by the founder? Or My perspective actually is that all founders are very good founders, right? They're smart founders, they're hardworking guys, they have the vision, they have the capabilities. I think the difference between the ones who get the escape velocity and the people who do not get the escape velocity for whatever reason, right? Uh, I primarily think is the execution strategy of the business. You need to get the execution strategy. This is absolutely correct, right? You need to monetize the business model. You need to have the thesis that this is a financial services business. This is not a tech business. Tech is on top of that, right? FinTech is Fin first, Tech second. It's not Tech first and Fin second. So I always tell founders if you think about financial services and how do financial institutions make money, right? Think about that. And now you go and build a platform or a business model or a product around it and then raise growth capital on it. And then I use technology as efficiency enabler in the market, right? To build a larger outcome. That's when the magic will happen, right? When you are raising growth capital, it's very easy to burn through the money, right? And where you just spend money, but you need to have an eye on return on investment on every capital that you spend, where you're spending, who you are spending with, and why you're spending that capital. What is the outcome going to be? 
what you need to bring people on board. You cannot, you need to have an experimental experiments going on, but you cannot be burning money through experiments, right? You cannot do great, uh, aggressive acquisition at growth stages, right? You need to understand your capability to acquire businesses, right? You capability to integrate those businesses, manage those businesses, why your team strong enough, right? So there's a bunch of things which result into faster growth and a bunch of things which not result into faster growth, right? Capital is just a, a byproduct. A capital is just a raw material. But how do you use that capital and bring efficiency to the business? The most important conversation that we tell founders to think about it every day, internalize, come back and create. Interesting. You said that unsecured lending is an area you, you're not going to ever invest in. Why is that? Like that's a, a pretty large opportunity in itself, right? As we say, never say never in our industry. Uh, but uh, yeah, okay. it's a... It's a it's a very tricky situation, right? When you give money somebody to, like if I give money to Akshay, right? I don't know Akshay, right? How am I going to recover money from Akshay? When you're doing unsecured lending, you are not lending to Akshay Sagar, you're lending to thousands of Akshays and Sagars and different start of income, different lifestyle, different journeys, right? And now you're hoping that this guy is going to pay me money. And you obviously have a tech stack in the collection infrastructure and the onboarding journey and the KYC journey. You have the underwriting models in place, yes. But at the end of the day, it's the intent and the ability to pay off the end consumer. So the challenge in unsecured lending is a lot of people are saying that it's okay for my first loan to be not profitable. I think that's a wrong way to approach it. Why should your first loan be not profitable? Every loan that you, every money that you dole out should generate a return on investment for you and should add to your balance sheet, right? So I think some founders have done a very good job in the consumer lending space and the, and the unsecured lending space in the SMB category. But sustainably creating a large outcome is very, very difficult. Right. And we know that from the past experience in China, US, India, that you need to have a more secure strategy towards lending and a more secure strategy towards collections. So I'm still evaluating businesses. I'm still looking for the best opportunities that come across my way, but I can actually invest in an unsecured lending business. You said some founders have done a good job of setting up an unsecured lending business. Who are those founders that you think have I done think, a, a uh, business? I think founders have done a very good job, right? Uh, Money okay. founders have done a very good job. Credit B founders have done a very good job. Right? Those three or four founders and I think Lending Card is doing an interesting job in the market, right? He was doing a good job in the market. There are four or five founders. I mean, there are a bunch of them who have done a good job. Uh, but can you have 100 plus companies in this category? Absolutely, right? Uh, we have okay. a lot of companies right now who are done a good job. It's interesting. The names you've mentioned are not the most high-profile ones in the lending space. Like the most high-profile ones are either, like say, payment like the UPI apps, UPI businesses, phone which are enabling payment transactions. of the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, even Bharat Pay on the P2B side. Uh, so the phone pays and the PDMs so, of the world, Akshay, are payment platforms and they're sourcing loans for banks and financial institution partners. They don't lend on their own balance sheet, right? The lending, right. yeah, so the lending is done by these guys, right? The ones who are actually have an NBFC license and a platform pay to lend money, right? Or the banks at the back, right? So you're right, uh, these are not the most high profile names, but in the next five years, you will see them as the most high profile names in the fintech lending space for them. Okay, okay. And what about these businesses which have data as the moat for lending, like say the Kata book and these kind of okay credit? I don't think having data is the only solution to lend money, right? I think data is one piece of the variable to underwrite the lending. You need to have a lot more information. You need to control the flow of capital. You need to control the flow of money, right? In the journey of lending, right? So why do you think payment companies have? Because they have access to cash of the underlying borrower, the underlying borrower, right? That's why they're able to lend more effectively. Just by having data doesn't really help you collect money, right? Lending is a more collection business than a lending business. So I think, right. I think they need to be part of the journey of the 
business, either from a transaction perspective, which is commerce, right, or payments, right, or some sort of a solution which is being utilized on a daily basis, then you will be able to lend and collect effectively. You can underwrite for sure, uh, but uh, again, underwriting is one quick part of the puzzle of uh, giving loans. It's a combination of uh, onboarding, uh, underwriting, lending, collecting, same time. And because of the importance of collections is why CredGenX would have been an appealing investment for absolutely, you. Absolutely. Lending is like... Everybody wants to lend money. Somebody has to build a collection stack. Right. Okay. Interesting. So there is like this general belief that we are going through a funding winter. Do you agree with that? So uh, funding winter is definitely there, uh, right, Akshay? Yeah. Funding winter from the perspective of the founders who have not been able to perform, right, will find it difficult to raise capital. A lot of smart founders raised capital in 2022. So they are now okay this year and next year. But people who have raised in 2020 and 2021 are coming back to the market. And if they have not been able to prove their business model or got a 100% product market straight or do not, are not able to show operational profitability to some sense, right? They will have difficulty to raise capital. It's not that capital is not there. There's more than $15 million of dry powder with Indian private equity venture capital fund managers. But because they want people to perform and the founders to show better operational metrics is why... The capital has been slowed down. Obviously, valuations have corrected globally, public market, private market valuations have corrected. And that reflects in the pricing ask, right? And that's why investors are also holding the, uh, holding the uh, conversations longer for them because they know that the pricing is, can be far more attractive than what, what is being asked by the founder. So it's all, all about can you hold on longer and get the best value for your price, right? And the business that you're buying. Interesting. Should a founder accept a down round? Like a lot of startups go through all sorts of gymnastics to avoid a down round. What's your view on that? I think the round, first of all, we should not increase the valuation to an expectation which we cannot meet, right? When you increase the valuation, then you have to produce the numbers to catch up the valuation, which is always a challenge. I always tell founders, do not keep increasing the valuation just because you want to raise new round or show markup for your previous investors. I always believe that capital and building the organization is more important than valuation and the up and down and down. If you believe in your version and if you've done mistakes in the past and now you have to take capital and lower valuation, take it. But you, you should be able to build business. So whether it's a down round or an up round, I don't think about that. I think I'm building a good business and does a capital help you build business and the whatever valuation it comes Okay. Can you share some of your mistakes as an investor? Maybe you passed up on something or maybe you thought this is a good investment and it turned out not to be like, what have been your own mistakes? What have you learned from them? We, as investors, get carried away, right? As I said, when we look at a 10-year journey, we build a lot of numbers and castles in the air, right? And we underwrite those assumptions and we invest in those companies sometimes, right? And yeah, sometimes you overestimate your understanding of the business. Sometimes you overestimate your understanding of the numbers, right? And then fundamentally go wrong and thesis some of those opportunities, right? And it has happened to us in the past, it happened to me in the past as well, where you can't do about what you've underwritten. Now it's all about fixing the business, right? Can you fix it in the time frame? Maybe not. Maybe yes, right? So trying to overestimate the opportunity in the market is the biggest mistake that we all do. How do you build your understanding of businesses? Because you said one of the biggest reasons for wrong bets is you overestimate your understanding of the business. And so how do you build an understanding of a business? Because it might take a founder like a couple of years, get a good understanding of a business, which you have a month at best to develop 
ఉంటుంది I can spend more and more time on this thesis and spend more and more time on payments, lending, insurance, health, agriculture, healthcare, education, commerce, right? I can just double click, keep double clicking on it and say, how we know what works and what doesn't work, right? So by being a sector-focused strategy, it allows you to keep building deeper and build a thesis on segments. And uh, it's more of a validation when you look at the company and the founder and say, hey, you know all the challenges and you fixed all the challenges. So we like the opportunity that you invested in. Um, and despite that, you underwrite the risk sometimes, right? So... you try to increase your understanding and every day is a new learning in a business that we are in right even today when we meet founders we learn something new every day right of how to look at things so it's a constant learning exercise for us at the same time okay amazing do you reach out to companies for investing in them or is it generally always inbound oh no we do all outbound reach outs we reach out to everybody in the market okay. right we want to be first people out there at the door talking to them understanding the business models right trying to underwrite their thesis trying to underwrite our own thesis so we we do very proactive reach outs we do very proactive follow ups right so it's been a constant exercise for us it's not new so we've been doing this for a long time we don't wait for companies to come to us obviously we get a lot of inbound as well but we do a lot of outbound as well okay how does a typical work week how does your time split look like like what percentage of your time is spent in meeting founders or what percentage of your time is spent in reading reports or like you know i think 25% of my time goes in meeting founders at least if not more right one one two two, two days in a week would probably go in meeting founders two one to two days is just trying to understand the industry a lot more right understanding sectors understanding segments understanding challenges one to two days just meeting industry folks and trying to understand what they are saying what they are underwriting right and obviously one to two days goes in continuously fundraising at the same time right so it's a multiple factors and multiple things that come together to determine the outcome so yeah it's quite well split right now between all of these different segments and that brings us to the end of this conversation i want to ask you for a favor now Did you like listening to the show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad@thepodium.in. That's ad@thepodium.in. At